Hi and welcome to the Sunday Lunch Project podcast episode for the 31st of January 2020 and this is your host Nigel Creaser. This month the Sunday Lunch Project manager meets Siddhar Oak, the iCoach, an interesting and uh, enthralling conversation. But first a word from our sponsors. Hmm. Sponsors. We don't have one this month, unfortunately. Um, We have lots and lots of availability. So if you're interested in sponsoring the show, then please get in touch at sundaylunchpmpod at nigelcreaser.com. I look forward to hearing from you. News. Well, um... The interview that I had with the website PM Tips went live on the 2nd of January. Uh, it was quite uh, interesting listening to myself back on that. Um, if you uh, want to have a quick read of it, it's on their website, or you can watch the, well, not watch the video. is not a video, really. It's just a, a YouTube version of it, the audio. Um, although I will, at some point, hopefully feature it uh, on this podcast so you'll catch it somehow i'll uh, try and force it down your throat some way one way or another um i continue to try to write my novel um it's been uh, tough this last month uh, things getting busy at work other stuff going on the dark nights giving me lots of lethargy um so it's a bit of a tough slog but actually every time i'm doing it i'm really enjoying the experience, enjoying the ideas, enjoying the the um, uh, the outlet, really. So uh, yeah, having good time with that. Um, I've not got any full interviews done this month, uh, which isn't what I planned. But I've got one scheduled for really early next month, so that'll wrap up the the uh, roster for the quarter for the first quarter of the year. Uh, I've got uh, quite a few people saying yes great i'd love to come on and we just need to uh, join up diaries and get them scheduled some really interesting people i'm uh, getting on there uh in february talking of interesting people i have emily lubrex em m sorry m the pm uh so that'll be the end of february uh that was a great conversation as well so uh looking forward to bringing you that one and i've also got a, a really interesting sunday brunch episode which i hope to bring to you middle of march Again, got to record it next month, so I don't want to uh, tempt fate on that one. Um, in other stuff, personal stuff, um, I might mention that I've been, uh, over the last few years, I've been playing around with Alexa skills. And my most recent skill is, is a collaboration with the local village website that I live in. Um, I don't live in the website, I live in the village. Um, and helping them get another channel to engage with the community and helping the community find out what's going on in the village. Um, if you're interested, uh, just search for Pant Today. Yes, that's what I said, Pant Today. No sniggering. It's the name of the village in Shropshire. Um, and they've got lots of really useful information on there, but there's a link, an article about the, the work that we've been doing. Um, or, or you can search in the Pant Today Amazon Skills Store. Uh, it will be very niche from point of view. If you don't live in Pant, you probably won't uh, um, 
find a great deal of interest there, but uh, thought I'd mention that one. Um, other than that, it's not a great deal to talk about in January. Just getting back to the flow of the year and thinking about some goals. So I think that's enough for me. And I will let you have a listen to the interview with the wonderful Siddhar Oak. Speak to you later. Today on the podcast, we have Siddhar Oak. Siddhar is an enterprise strategy and technology expert with a passion for achieving tangible outcomes, an experienced and motivated manager, entrepreneur, enterprise architect, and coach with a vast experience in influential, innovative digital transformation at strategic management levels and consistently bringing results-orientated insights. He advises at a strategic and solution level for organizations and manages programs and projects and oversees innovation. He is sought after for his knowledge, experience and network in the area of a highly regulated environment, the health side of it, with digital health startups, hospitals, doctor organizations, public organizations and health media. He's the CEO and founder of Knowledge Experts Consultancy, which is committed to providing the best outcome for its clients by architecting, developing, customizing, and deploying turnkey solutions. With an excellent history of delivering the best results to its clients, which are mostly in Fortune 500 organizations specialized in bringing strategic consultancy across the sectors and services uh, for large and middle-scale enterprises. Uh, and the areas include business transformation, change management, business process management, business intelligence strategies, IT and mobility strategies and development and corporate governance. Governance. So welcome to the show, Sida. I'm very happy to be on the show, Nigel. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's great to have you on. So let's start at the beginning. Where, as people will pick up your accent, um, where were you born? Ah, can you pick up from my accent? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I cheated because I've looked at your LinkedIn profile. <laughs> and I was yeah. guessing. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like, uh, as you said, you can pick from my accent that I am not a native English speaker. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm from uh, the Middle East, basically, uh, southeast of Turkey. I was born in a city called Diyarbakir and uh, from a war zone. Basically, I grew up in a, in the middle of a mild civil war, and I I had to kind of get out of there <laughs> to <laughs> like you, as you can imagine why, and uh, that has become my necessity to do something good and to to do better things. What it taught me basically as a philosophy of life: if you have the necessity, you it pushes you to do the right things and it is really cured a lot of things like it is very hard to procrastinate if the day after you are going to be taken by the army and uh, you have to do your compulsory military uh, duty uh, that like you can be very sure that tonight till 12 o'clock I will be applying for jobs outside and, <laughs> and I will not sleep and procrastinate right so that necessity created a lot of uh, breakthroughs in my career and I am thankful in some ways and of course it's an underprivileged background and I'm I, I would prefer to have like more money when I was growing up or less uh, noise around me too so uh, 
this is where I used to live. And then I have um, I have gotten an education in computer science. And then I started working for Microsoft in Seattle in the United States. And then I came back to Turkey, worked a little bit while in Turkey as well. And my compulsory military duty has come. So I had to leave the country again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and every time they were chasing me, they were noticing that I'm gone. Um, so, but this time for nearly for good. So I went to Ireland. I worked two years in Ireland with a, uh, with a multinational international company. And then I started working as an independent uh, consultant, project manager, and enterprise architect in strategic transformation projects, mainly in tech space. And I started getting some nice big clients with uh, a, a lot of exposure and a lot of offices around the world, uh, Microsoft being one of them. Okay, They used to be my ex-employer, so I had some connections there. But not only that, with uh, Amazon, Google, um, yeah, you name it, like Fujitsu, Bridgestone, um, Belgian government, uh, some other European Union institutions here in Belgium. Um, so it has been quite a journey coming from a civil war and doing these kind of stuff. And now I'm also helping with my um, coaching practice also for other people to break through these barriers and uh, increase their value for their life. Um, so, for example, I have clients as like project managers who want to break into program management or executive roles, and I am helping them the way it worked for me, uh, and I try to go with them through that process. So, uh, I am living now in in Belgium, Brussels. Uh, so actually, uh, it is it's a lie. So I'm it's a little bit outside of Brussels. <laughs> And I am looking at a very nice lake view for the moment when I'm speaking to you, which Brussels doesn't have. So, uh, but it's very close to Brussels. Um, yeah, soon uh, you will not notice it as your capital, <laughs> let's say, you know, to 31st of October. But uh, well, till that's that what time, they're saying. Yeah, that's what they're saying. Who knows? Who knows? I've, 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 I've stopped trying to predict what it actually ends up being. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is it, it, stuff, like predicting is much more fun than the actual doom that's awaiting for all of us. <laughs> yeah, it'll be it'll be an interesting um, uh, a period. No doubt we'll everyone will survive. I hope yes, so anyway. <laughs> yeah, we, we did and we will be. But I hope it will be good for everybody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um so you're in Brussels. Um, what, what about family? Are you have you got family? Uh, yeah. Like I have, a, I have a wife, and I have one kid of um, two and a half years old, and the other one is on the way. Ah, congratulations! Uh, thank you very much. Actually, we are at the nine months, so the baby can come anytime. So, <laughs> so if you need to drop the phone, then that's fine. We can pick the interview up later. No, no, we have talked about. It. I said that if. The baby comes now. You go on your own. That's. <laughs> we, I have more important stuff to tend to, and <laughs> we well, have to know that. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Like, I wanted to make the call from my computer. So yeah, I was going to say, yeah. you've got no yeah. excuse now because you're on the mobile. 
Yeah, I am um, you'd have mobile, to go so along. So we may have our first birth on the podcast. Yeah, indeed, and that's going to be uh, an, an international interesting project management case study. Yeah, yeah, that would be. Have to, <laughs> I think we're talking about being very agile here, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. I don't think of documenting them anytime soon. So yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> that's fair be. enough. <laughs> it will be. <laughs> so, so, so going back to what you you were saying about where you you um, growing up in Turkey, um, what? And it's a really different, completely different uh, conversation to a lot of the people I've had before. Is what is it you wanted to be um, when you were growing up? Not necessarily when you were applying to get away from national service, but what 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 was it you wanted to be when you were younger? Was that or was there? I'm not sure what sort of period when you had that civil war going on. Did it? Yeah. Well, all of of your growing up, or yeah, of course the the thing on my list was to be safe i mean i always wanted to be safe first (laughs) yeah and um like and probably it is not a common answer for a lot of kids when you are very small to say that okay i'm gonna be a project manager i didn't know what a project manager was till i was like even graduated after the university I, i mean i i have studied computer science and i have not seen any computer till i was 17 the first day I have jumped in front of a computer and they described me how to hold a mouse, uh, how to how a keyboard works, like that uh, type of basic. So it is like my first thoughts of job was not like based on information, but basically on looking at who does and who is respected in the society. So I was very much into a, we are a rural community and we have a lot of far, farms around. I really wanted to be a horse farmer. I mean, I don't know why, like maybe I liked horses a lot yeah. uh, and I didn't see probably the hard side of it. Like uh, I wanted, I thought that probably I'm going to ride on horses all day to the sunset, but somebody else will clean the horse manure and <laughs> <laughs> And the uh, same for goes for the computer science. Actually, you know, like when I was uh, when I was choosing computer science in the university, I knew nothing about it, and I have had nobody, absolutely nobody, to ask. And we didn't have like computer classes at the, you know, I didn't, I didn't do any programming at all. Like now, it's like everybody and their three-year-old kid has to do programming. We all yeah. have to learn it, etc. But at those times, it used to be like. I was like, I want to go to uh, study programming. And they were like, oh, yeah, from the morning to till evening, you want to play computer games. And, <laughs> and actually, it was true. You know, I wanted to play computer games. <laughs> that was sort of the reason. But that shows you the ignorance we had around ourselves, right? We didn't know any better. Yeah, I think, uh, I think even so, there's quite a few 17-year-olds who um, look around today and think they're going to or would like to play computer games as their career anyway wouldn't they every day yeah even and, now. And, and now and now you see that it's a real career mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah, yeah that's yeah. That, that that's that's the thing you know a lot of people are earning uh, a lot of uh, money like millions that uh, you and i cannot dream of by just looking at uh, computers and streaming their games via twitch 
Yeah. And yeah, it, it, like 10 years ago, we would be making fun of those ideas. And now it's, it's everywhere. Um, as you have also noticed in the technology, there has been trends going up and down and some trends striking back. So in our years, like in the 90s, uh, the game used to be something for the nerds, right? The video yeah. games. Like if you are truly a computer savvy person, only then you would be able to get some access to some gear that you would be able to play some games. And that's why the fathers, etc., like the newspapers, you would always read like, yeah, games are killing the creativity of the kids. They are making people more violent, etc. And now there is no such thing as a gamer anymore. Everybody's a gamer. Even if you have no games whatsoever in your mobile phone, you have a few games to relax from time to time, right? So it is amazing that it has come to the level of uh, everyday people. And I see a very interesting parallel with this with project management as well. Like project management used to be like big construction firms in 80s and 90s, right? And now we all need project management in our daily lives. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. It's, yeah. uh, I, th I think one of the conversations we had um uh, earlier on in, in, on one of my previous interviews was around the fact that using project management techniques now because because everybody every every job you're in you tend to end up being in projects of some description certainly in in sort of office type based roles but even even at the simplest level you can use the the project management skills to uh, um uh organize things that you do and, and the basic skill of a project manager is fundamental to everyone it's what have you got to do by when and who's going to do it that's it hey. Sim simply and therefore if you've got a project with a team of you and you're a teenage bunch of teenagers and you've got five of you working out who's doing what well there you go you're doing project management whether you like it or not, you're doing project management because all it is is who's doing what by when. Yeah, exactly, Nigel. And uh, even the projects, the goals that we have for ourselves and we set ourselves are doomed to stay as goals if you don't make projects out of it. Absolutely, yeah. It's that right, writing down what you're going to do and then breaking it down into those component parts about when you're going to do it. Um, I, 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 yeah. look I look behind me as I'm talking and on my board, I've got my to-do, doing, done uh, Kanban board on the back of the wall. It's, yeah, and indeed. That's just, and that's, that's yeah. project management, right? That's exactly. Agile project management. Yeah. And the, it is the basic thing that you have to do if you want to get things really done. And that's why in our, like 20, 30 years ago, we didn't have to think like that. I mean... It is not in our innate thinking. It is not our, like, Daniel Kahneman talks about this system one and system two. You know, like, uh, in as a system one, your thinking is more, like, um, very, uh, gr like, instant gratification. Yeah. And it's the type of thing, like, fight and flight mode. When you see a lion, you want to fly, uh, system one. And system two is more, like, calm thinking, long-term benefits it is the thing that tells you to not to overeat yeah uh, and or like so you you are not going to lose your long-term health or the type of uh, thinking that you use when you are playing a game of chess 
yeah. uh, rather than like in- instant gratification, right? Our like the system one that we had is not a project manager. It's not a good one, let's say. <laughs> so yeah. that the, and that has come now to everybody's life that we have tons of goals in the modern life and we are not achieving any of them. And the top reason that I think is really we are not taking those goals as one project at a time or part of multiple projects. And we as project managers are guilty of it too. We don't apply the proven methods that we preach and we tell everybody to our own lives. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's that that whole adage, isn't it, is where you have a an accountant whose finances are terrible and a mechanic's car that's falling apart, isn't it? You you can you can fix everybody else's problems, but fixing your own sometimes <laughs> is a bit harder to do. Yeah, so indeed. so so you grew up uh, there in in Turkey, and and you said that you went to uh, to study. Well, so how did how did that work? Because obviously, I'm I'm guessing within. Within the the civil war, the, the education processes in in the area where you were were not pretty very structured. How, how did you get to to do all the training that you needed to, or qualified to get to university, etc.? How did that happen? Yeah, so Turkey, um, the access to university is unfortunately it, it used to be worse. Actually, that um, in the Western world, you know, you have nearly more opportunities than the number of people to fill in. Like we, we, we try to now in the technology, we try to get girls into tech. We try to get more people interested in tech and we are still not able to fill all the positions yeah. in tech, right? Yeah. And in Turkey, you don't have enough universities, at least around those times. Now it's a little bit better. So you have to enter a grueling exam like that you have to study like 10, 12 hours per day, and you are asked a series of questions. It's a very difficult exam, like SAT, but uh, on steroids, if you think. And you have to get into top, like, 1,000 people to get to land uh, to a position of a computer engineer or computer scientist out of 2 million uh, students. Oh, wow. So that's that's incredible if you come to think of it like uh, to study something as vital as a computer scientist like because it's in everyday life Mm. you have to only you can only select people like 1000 people out of 2 million which is like yeah one in 2000 basically so that was difficult but uh, i was able to put in the hard work and at least get through that and I ended up uh, being able to go to the west coast of Turkey uh, a beautiful Asian city called Izmir and there was no civil war there so (laughs) problem partially solved Um, of course that was till I graduated and had to do my compulsory military service nice (laughs) but that's for later but the, the, the education that I received I cannot complain about it it was free well free I still had to pay a little bit for my for my studies, but uh, I certainly didn't have to go through a big loan, um, like our uh, friends from US who are listening mm-hmm. will uh, <laughs> will uh, cherish those moments of payments, yeah. I suppose. Uh, yeah. But we are. I, I was lucky that I was able to access to that level, and uh, when I was 
studying, I had to also work at the same time. And I was lucky that uh, computer science gives you opportunities that you can study and work at the same field, right? Like if I was studying philosophy, uh, then I would probably have to go and do some animations or clone-esque, whatever. But in computer science, I was able to go and study as uh, do, do some work uh, and earn some money as a professional programmer as well. And uh, also sharpen my skills at the same time. And that's how I actually started to work with Microsoft. I started to write articles for their website. Uh, and unsol unsolicited articles, you know, they had an academic website and I would just show up and I say, look, I have written an article about the technology you have. And they were like, yeah, cool. Okay. And one, two, three, five, ten, like that. So then they began to notice that, okay, this guy is uh, super interested in our technology. He produces good content. And um, now I look at those contents. They are terrible, of course, but... <laughs> The, for that time, it, it was very good, and it put me into the radar, uh, and it helped me to forge a relationship with them. So they set up a academic website, and they made me one of the editors of the content, um, which was the beginning of a great relationship. Because down the line, I was able to get uh, get into Microsoft as an employee, and then also get them as a client. Um, on a larger scale. So uh, that, that, that beginning of uh, process um, and being naive about like doing things, because like if I think about it now, I would think like, ah, okay, I'm going to write 10 articles. Who cares uh, in Microsoft that they are going to read about it and they are going to think that it is cool, etc. But I didn't know any better. I mean, I was like, Okay, you know, like I'm going to write something and I'm going to share the knowledge that I have um, and I'll see what happens. And yeah. that naivety has given me the breakthroughs that I was I was looking for. Sometimes that naivety in 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 not not knowing or not having doubts about whether something can be done and and it's really useful and we, uh, I know I, I've lost that over time but then every so often you find it again and go right let's just go for it and see what happens and and sometimes those are the things that make the massive difference aren't they yeah indeed and uh, yeah I was uh, after I finished my education there I um, when I was graduating I have made a um, project as uh, it was called the smart wheelchair um, right. It was a real wheelchair for disabled people that um, you would basically talk to a robot on the wheel wheelchair and say, ah, bring me to, uh, take me to the nearest uh, pharmacy and uh, the wheelchair would take you. Um, so if you are like for blind people or for people with uh, disabilities, there was a wheelchair that would take them to anywhere of course it's a little bit uh, now that not that impressive but this was year 2004 yeah. so there was there was no gps around and <laughs> so this uh, like gps was a military technology yeah. and uh, that with that project we have won some awards around the world um in uh, microsoft uh, contests with uh, imagine cup also 
that allowed me to have contacts in Microsoft Seattle. We went to Seattle and presented our project. It was very well received. And thanks to that, I was recruited by Microsoft over there and I was able to work there for about a year as a, uh, as a software design engineer in test. And that's how I started really uh, getting into the nuts and bolts of, of the technology. I didn't start, and I don't know if you can start a technology business from day one as a project manager, <laughs> but uh, for me, it had to have been a steady increase of, so I started as a software engineer and I become a senior. I became an architect and I started getting small parts of the projects that make that, that make interesting cases and differences. Then I started to get more and more projects like this. And then uh, before you know it, I was managing multiple projects and uh, I started to gain some more exposure about the PNL and the, the ex executive part of it. And that's how I broke to the higher levels and strategical decisions. And also with my background as an enterprise architect, I was able to juggle both balls, etc. So it has been like a steady growth. I didn't, for example, have an MBA and mm. just become a project manager or an executive out of nowhere. So um, I had to do my own MBA within the life by myself. Yeah. So if, um, it, as, as you went through that, what, what would, what kind of industries have you been involved in then? I, I, I kind of, I, again, I, I've looked and I saw that and the, with the intro, you've been involved with healthcare and that kind of explains where you're, you're starting with the, the, the building of the wheel, wheelchair. I assume that's part of, is that a passion yeah. of yours or, or what? Yeah, indeed. So the, of course the tech is the big team, right? So mm. underlying the tech industry, I have always been involved with it and everything that I have done, all the industries that I have been involved with has been an extension of tech. So I have done automotive, but I have done automotive tech. I have done, um, I have done policy and government, but I have done the tech uh, and yeah. strategical part of it. So I have not uh, developed any strategy for my clients or I have not delivered any transformation projects that somehow is never related to tech, like, I mean, I have delivered business projects, of course, who don't have like technical deployments whatsoever, but still the transformational part of it and the result that was delivered some had something to do with the technology. So I always had this overarching uh, theme of tech on the behind, but uh, I had, um, yeah, clients like uh, big software and uh, cloud delivery companies, like the names I mentioned, also some clients in the automotive sector. A lot of uh, the early careers of my life was devoted to policymaking. And uh, I worked with the Belgian government in the health insurance for about like two years and a half uh, as an advisor to the CIO. Um, so that exposed me to the problems of uh, health industry. Mm. Afterwards, I have also set up a startup to solve those problems. I have had uh, more uh, in-depth uh, dives uh, and I have done more for the health tech community. But health, indeed, as you have uh, pointed out, Nigel, is very dear to my heart. 
and that's my favorite, let's say, uh, and that's where my expertise lie. I know a lot about the digital health and the health uh, landscape, and I believe that everybody should be and are worried about the health because uh, like okay if we don't have technology or electricity one day we will survive but if we don't have our health uh, i mean what what does that all mean right yeah. and it affects everything else it is the in basic infrastructure of our lives and i am yet appalled that like most of the the, gov the government policies and also the people are not uh, like we are having more and more progress, right? We are more careful about what we eat. Uh, our personal health is one thing, but as a policy wise, um, our 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 governing uh, bodies really uh, can be very, um, let's say, like technology averse and uh, be uh, very risk averse. Uh, I can understand them as well, but at the same time, um, we have to find a balance, and uh, that makes me a little sad, and that's why I wanted to uh, get more activities on it, to, to speed up this process and to um, to help those people, because, you know, like, the things that would possibly take in, the, in a health tech startup, like, two days, in the government, it takes, like, two years, Yeah, and I'm not exaggerating, yeah? Like, yeah, this I think, is not. Yeah. I know what you mean. I, I can see what you mean. It's kind of. Um, I think it's. I think that's a reflection of the fact that most government organisations are large, and any organisation at large immediately starts to lose its ability to change quickly, doesn't it? Yeah, indeed. Uh, there is certainly the agility part of it that. Uh, uh, we cannot expect um, the elephant to be as fast as cheetah. Yeah, yeah. But on the other hand, there are other forces in play too, such as like uh, politics. Mm -hmm. the, yeah, politics very, very heavily influenced. Like for example, in Belgium, uh, we have six governments. Um, actually, currently we don't have any of them because they, they couldn't they couldn't form the government, and it takes. Uh, famously a lot of time in Belgium to form governments and I think we broke the records a couple of times of uh, being managed without a government government for like about two years <laughs> nothing to be proud of but <laughs> that's that's where we are we have six governments and we have tons of local communes and everybody everybody in those government and in those roles have a say in every decision Okay, so it might sound as in the perfect world very um, like utopian or very nice, but you can imagine what kind of chaos it brings, right? Like everybody has to agree. We we call it Belgian compromise, like it's a famous term here. <laughs> <laughs> so, like for example, uh, you and I are working in a Belgian project. I say that it um, we have to go the way of zero. And you say we have to go to the way of 100. You are absolutely right, okay? Because you are bringing us forward and 100. And everybody knows it. But just because it, I say zero, it has to be zero, We, you have to convince me that it has to be 100. So we negotiate and we settle somewhere between 60, okay? 
because you are a good negotiator, you get more than yeah. 50. In the end, what happens is that like nobody got what they wanted. I am not happy because I have given in 60. You are not happy because you wanted to go for 100, right? The people who are going to get the value are not happy because they were, they were expecting 100. What happened to the rest of 40, right? So this is the Belgian compromise that we have. Um, and it is very innate in the culture. Um, but I found a, a lot of uh, different negotiation tactics that can speed up this process. But I'm sure like in every kind of culture in the UK as well, you have some um, sort of cultural traits in your daily project management practice. I'm sure you can give some examples. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And I think I think the the um, the the general point with as you said about risk aversion about organizations in general is it you can't get blamed for or it's le- you're less likely to get blamed for sort of taking no action than taking action that is wrong yeah, and, that, and that's what some some people um go that way and, and it's kind of breaking that and the problem is is because the world is changing so quickly so fast now um, as we said earlier about the fact that everyone has a project, is that actually you just need to be changing and you need to be ready to change um, because stagnation is the thing where I, th- I think the I think we've all heard the, the story of Blockbuster, the story of Kodak about these organisations that had massive competitors there, but they sat there and went, no, well, we do it this way. So if we don't change, we'll be all right. Yeah, exactly. There, and There's less and, risk. And, yeah yeah and that's that's the thing you know like as you said if you don't change uh, the blame is is like who's who is the main responsible of the decline of kodak now who knows right yeah. there is like but if there was a change and then it was a result of that change you would definitely know i mean it would be sensationalized it was. It would be everywhere that yeah, Kodak has went down because they have changed that model from X to Y, yeah. and that's how they went under, right? Yeah. So indeed, like blame, uh, the blame culture is uh, is is a big part of it, and also in the government, it, you see like the epitome of it in the government when you are making government policies in some areas like green energy, and it it, it goes rather quicker when you are making some sort of win-win situation across the political aisle. But if it is a controversial subject, such as um, such as healthcare is, right? Yeah, yeah. Like how much of it should be universal? What should be yeah. the copay? And uh, how is it going to affect the doctors? How is it going to affect the patients? Hospitals still have to turn in a profit, but then they still uh, have to treat you. Well, I mean, look at the, point of hospitals we can be very angry with the hospitals i am also very angry with uh, a lot of hospitals when i have to get uh, my own care let's say mm-hmm. but when i when i look at their business model it is it's completely insane i mean we put the hospitals in a situation to tell them all right you will set up a shop you will have to turn a profit and you will only turn this profit by running a business where your incentive comes from non-repeating customers, mm. right? <laughs> so if yeah. 
you have repeating customers, you fail. Yeah. If you don't turn in money, you fail. Okay. Then, then what kind of business is this? <laughs> yeah, like, it's counter- counterintuitive, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And uh, and that indeed makes uh, a, a good case about like how uh, we are thinking about those those policies as a society, but also even in small scales when we are uh, like when we go somewhere a hospital and we still see that uh, there are a lot of things that could be improved and they are not yeah most of the time it's because of that uh, risk aversion or slowness to change and uh, not having a, a an incentive to uh, make it better for for the people now don't get me wrong a lot of smart people in the government i mean the yeah they have uh, i have advised them uh, throughout my my career it is the innate system that blocks a lot of things and uh, i have seen also part of it when i was running my startup uh, vivi doctor vividoctor was a teleconsultation uh, startup i still is uh, functional but i am not anymore the ceo of it so the main idea is to make the teleconsultations who are what are the ones that are possible online we will make them online and we will take off the um, we will take off the load from the hospitals and the emergency rooms so you when you are your kid has a fever that you would not have to take him to the emergency room like you would be able to um, get an advice remotely etc and you the emergency room by default would not be clogged up so it's a great system on paper, but again, when it comes to the policy side, you you like a lot of people are debating like, is it even legal? Can you even do that, etc. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's our way of thinking a little bit uh, in Europe, as you know, like in in America, when there's a problem, they like to set up a company, a startup to solve the problem. Yeah. Here in Europe. When there is a problem, we like to set up an institution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I can see your point there. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's how it works, unfortunately, in healthcare. But things are changing. Uh, we are seeing more energy, more more productivity, and I'm hopeful for for the future. But again, yeah, with the time and 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 so on. So also the. Uh, side of uh, an entrepreneur and the speed of an entrepreneurial project management is of course much more different than uh, a government project management right like yeah yeah the when, when i am managing a, i was managing a generic payment system for the government uh, like i remember that at one point i told them like give me the money that you are going to spend on this the project is already late for two years and it still has to go for another year in three months with uh, developers from Ukraine or whatsoever. I will turn you in the, you the results, everything done. And I will sign up, sign for it. You know, like if you, there is nothing, I will be able to pay you penalties. And <laughs> the amount like it, Actually, it's a great proposal in terms of an entrepreneur proposing a solution to a problem, but 
when you come to think of their perspective, they are more like, okay, you know, like we are here also to give some jobs to people. We don't want uh, like uh, those jobs taken away, be outsourced. So even though it's a little bit more expensive, even though it takes a little bit more time. So we don't want those people going to union and making some protests. So this kind of problem you don't have when you are an entrepreneur no, you and you don't. are managing yeah, your own project. So that's wh- why I stopped actually going from the, the my learnings from the government side. I have applied them to my entrepreneurship, but I have also learned that you cannot really follow the same path that they have followed. And it's a very, very different type of project management. I mean, imagine you have a project plan. I don't know if you have ever done this. Like in my project plans of the government, like the government projects that I have uh, managed, there was like a normal project plan. And there was a project plan that I'm thinking in reality it would go. (laughs) (laughs) So in that reality, there are blocks like, you know, like in the normal project plan, you have all these nice initiation phase, documentation phase and deployments, whatever, like all everything by the book of uh, PMP or Prince 2, all the methodologies and all the processes are in place. But in this parallel one, I have things like, yeah, resistance. You know, this department is never going to accept the rollout in two months, three months. Well, yeah, like, but that's 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 stakeholder and understanding your stakeholders, isn't it? That indeed. That, that's going there and going right. Okay, what is the real right? There's a basic. That's a start point, right? Okay, and then layering on top your organizational culture. Um, exactly. And because I think. Uh, sometimes people will forget and it works both ways i suppose is you'll get some people who will sit there and go well you'll never get that done here and and don't challenge the culture enough others will come in and i I know when i've gone into organizations first time thinking shaking my head saying well why is this this should be easier um it is a um, what's the word? I think, as you say, you need to sit there and go right. That's my plan, but I need to allow for the culture. I need to step back, think about the culture, and because sometimes you can end up challenging, looking at it and go right, right. Let's challenge that. Let's challenge that. Let's challenge that. Let's challenge yeah. that. And actually, you're going to lose some of those battles, and then you're going to burn the bridge with your stakeholder. Yeah. And then if you've burned the bridge with that stakeholder, when you need them later, it's too late. So you got, you kind of got to, like you say, you layer that bit over the top and you've got to got to work within the culture of whatever that organization is. It might be, as you some of them, you may sit there with your whole, your process is all there and they're going, why are we doing all that rubbish? Let's just get on and do it because it's, <laughs> a, because it's the opposite end of the scale, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. That's... Yeah, and 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 that's how it works. I mean, the, it is very easy to get uh, focus on the certifications, the processes, and really leaving people aspect of it behind, and forget that you are dealing really with people to make these things happen. Right. So I completely follow what you say. Yeah. So what? So you we talk about the fact that you obviously you've been there in your project management. 
um, you've you've stepped into the project management roles. It wasn't it wasn't your aim to be there. You you were going to be a gamer or a horse farmer. Um, <laughs> what do you remember as being your first project? And tell me a little bit about it. Um, first time you thought do, I've do, got the badge of a PM. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. So you don't mean like uh, in my life or no. like that I remember as a project, like as no. a real project professionally. Yeah. When you're standing managed. there thinking, uh, hang on, I am, it's my fault if this doesn't happen. Uh-huh. Actually, you know, like one of the things I would really love to hear from other people that when I was managing a project, somebody would just come and tell me, hey, Sidar, you are managing a project now. Because I really didn't know that I was managing a project. <laughs> so <laughs> that's uh, the, it was in a in a payment company in in Belgium. So I I was managing teams before, but as you know, team management is different than mm-hmm. project management, right? Like being their direct report for their technical and uh, and career performance is different than uh, a delivery mindset a closure and stakeholder satisfaction. So when I was put into the position of uh, managing this, uh, it was a project about uh, managing the pay buttons. You know, like when you go to the airlines, there are these payment gateways. Now it's like right. they're like standards and uh, they are now customized per country. So every country has different payment providers. Um, like in uh, Netherlands, you have Ideal. In Belgium, you have Bank Contact. In in uh, yeah, you have some countries who are accepting some sort of payments, etc. So we were doing those pages, and it was the first like that. Uh, I'm not going to name the company, but the mm-hmm. company uh, people who are in the payment space will immediately recognize who I'm talking about <laughs> because they sort of invented those mechanisms of uh, right. pages. So. I was there as an as a team leader and an architect as an external contractor, right? But suddenly I I found myself that like uh, I was given more and more tasks of end delivery, and before I knew, I mean, we were there for like I was doing the the reporting and I was doing the, uh, the I was responsible of the stakeholder satisfaction i was responsible of the risk management and the project was delivered and uh, like they have celebrated me as the project manager of the project and that was the time that i learned that <laughs> <laughs> i was the project manager of the project i was like shit i have done this uh, and i had no formal training i have not looked up what i have to do i thought everything about the common sense and i have done tons of things wrong don't like this is not a happy story you know like we have uh, the, the project was delayed uh, and uh, we have lost uh, some of the um, so, so we had to cut some of the features that we had to put in and that probably resulted in some loss but we were so immature that we didn't even measure that <laughs> so the but that realization that I was actually managing a project pushed me. I said, okay, you know, from now on, I am not doing this this way again. I mean, I was about to be burnt out. I don't know 
the, how the next project will work. There has to be a way, a body of knowledge. I didn't know about the, I, I knew about the certifications and stuff, but being the cool architect and hippie guy, I was despising those certifications. <laughs> I, I like, you know, like if there is something, I'm going to go and Google and learn it. Who needs a damn certification? Well, it turns out that they help. Um, so they, yeah, they, uh, the, they all come uh, down from a, a filter of uh, years of wisdom, right? Mm. So a, a lot of research has gone into them. A lot of uh, knowledge throughout all the years have gone into them. And if you want to break the rules of a game, first you have to play that game well, right? Yeah. And that's why what I learned the hard way. And that was my, my first project. It was, thank God, uh, not a super large project. It was about like a size of a million euros, give or take. Mm -hmm. So it didn't have so much of an, of an impact, but the effects of it is, to me, uh, the currently it's still everlasting i mean yeah. why wouldn't somebody tell me You're all these things i was I, I was i was studying for prince too after this project and every time i learned anything i was like oh my goodness you know <laughs> what have i done like just six months ago <laughs> and well, uh, yeah. yeah i suppose uh, you, the good thing you've got there is that you had that scenario where you did it without knowing you were doing it you did it wrong without knowing you were doing it. And then when you were reading some way, better way to do it, when you're reading it, you'd be going, yep, yeah, that would have been better. Whereas if you'd yeah. <laughs> read it beforehand, you might have gone, well, why would I need to do it that way? So you kind of, maybe maybe that's a good way of doing it. I don't know. Yeah, indeed. Project so management in, by stealth. Yeah, it's like the, uh, yeah, you know, like that saying goes, the in, in theory, there is no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. <laughs> so th this is exactly about that. I mean, when you learn uh, one of them first, you will always be wrong and, and you will get to some points. But recognizing the mistakes that you have made is at times very difficult. It's even more than like learning the correct way. And it inhibits the growth um, because, you know, like you can tell me now that, okay, Sidar, uh, you have to uh, make certain that you have your sign of conditions uh, set in stone before you are going to the last stage or the closure of the project. You should never go into a meeting not knowing that it's going to be signed off or not. Mm, I mean, yeah. it's a great, it's a great advice, the standard. But if I don't know about it, I will yeah. just dive into that room <laughs> and I will say, hey, common sense, sign it off and we get to our job. Yeah. Right. And but it doesn't work that way. Like in that sense, the theory helps. Right. But the th where the theory doesn't help is when the, the shit hits the fan, yeah. when you have angry stakeholders who want their part prioritized and all the conflicts, all the schedules are merging into themselves and one team member doesn't like the other, etc. Like these things you don't learn from books or you don't, you learn part of it uh, by the negotiation or self-help or, or whatever. 
but no certification is going to tell you about this and that only comes from the practice and that's why I what I like about uh, project management it really makes me feel human and the steps that I am we are taking like I think a team without a project manager is a group of people it's not a team hmm. The yeah. things, the thing that makes a team a team is being centered around the goal. And if there is not one person dedicated, and I don't mean it as a hierarchical way, you know, I'm really thinking is you can even think of it as a secretarial way, right? A person who makes sure that we are on track, we are going to going to have something. That person is what makes a team team. That person forces us to collaborate, talk to each other, etc. Otherwise, it's just a social group of gathering of people, and we are not even centered around the goal. We are just centered around the salary, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. I think I think it's it, there. There is that. You need someone. And and I know in these days of agile and that you still need that project manager, the the product owner who sets that vision going forward uh, of where the team needs to be going. Otherwise, you can be going off anywhere. Yeah, so you, you 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 said that that first project wasn't uh, fortunately it wasn't a large project. So what was what was the largest project that you've uh, managed? And and when I say large, and I, and I say this to all my guests, I, it's not. I don't necessarily mean it's the biggest number of days or the biggest number of pounds that you spent or the biggest, it could be the number of people you influenced. It could be the number of, or just, just that, that felt the biggest to you. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I think that's actually an easy one because um, like those kind of big feelings, you remember them very easily. Like, mm -hmm. Like this is it comes as a wave and you you relive those feelings. Um, I had a Russian um, construction company as a client, and one like I, I met the CEO of this conglomerate in a meeting in Istanbul, and I was working with another project at the same time in, in Belgium. So I was just for holidays. I was not for business purposes there. And uh, this was his year 2013. And we have started to talk about the company, the, his company, his company strategy. It's a big name. I'm not going to again uh, mm -hmm. name, uh, name the name. But uh, I can say that the uh, amount of businesses that they are making both with the European companies and within Russia and with US is in the numbers of B. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's, 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 a, it's a big firm, right? But um, I, I, and I didn't know the guy. I didn't know uh, that he was the CEO, but he was uh, a friend of a friend. And so we were talking about like general strategical issues. And I was talking about uh, the strategical thinking, the, uh, about the technological development, the enterprise architecture, um, how we make uh, the roadmaps 
for, to go from uh, as is to to be architectures because these people you have to understand that they are, they are all like physical architects you know and they have ways of the, managing their roadmaps like from year going back and i was like this new guy in his uh, 30s so i was not even 30 i think yeah 30 31 or so and coming and telling them oh no uh, if you are battling in the new economy with the big league people then uh, you have to change the way otherwise uh, you are going to crash and burn quite soon so and actually it resonated with the guy and then after two months um, he he called me and he said that yes you remember me I we have this uh, group etc and then I just want to come and uh, make like one week of workshop so you can train my people around this new thing that you just mentioned the strategical thinking or enterprise like whatever and now we will do it on our own and I was like, I don't think that it quite works that way. <laughs> like, can we can we really do it in a week and be done with it? And you will be do, able to do everything by yourself. But I said, okay, I will come and I will learn about the situation as well. And that week has turned into a big transformation project um, that had implications of uh, about 50 million, uh, 50 million euros. Um, I didn't manage, of course, all the 50 million euros, but I managed the big program of the transformation. Uh, so we have, uh, there were parts of hiring people, there were high, uh, parts of optimizing the processes, uh, making new projects. So we had basically projects of making projects. We had to plan them. Um, and I would say that the, like I have finished the within nine months, I have finished the first part of it, and the afterwards I had to relocate to Moscow if I had to continue to the full flash project. And at that time of my life, uh, I didn't want to, so I, I stopped at that point. But I would say that that's the biggest project with the biggest impact mm. in terms of even the dollar value or euro yeah. value, also the number of people. Uh, and also the um, yeah b that was before the Russian sanctions, so they really uh, I'm still in touch with uh, the, the CEO and I'm helping them from time to time, and they really appreciate that they got their docs in order before the sanctions arrived. Yeah. Wow, that does sound like a beast of a project. Indeed, so indeed. So you can you can count it as a program because it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, so maybe it is a little bit cheating. No, there's 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 no there's no cheating on that question. You, it's whatever <laughs> whatever you feel is the largest project that you've managed, and a project will be a program. Or to me, in that context, it's it's the whilst you have slightly different skills, it still draws really, it in. But these these type of projects really teach you. But I would find more than an MBA would ever teach you, or any course would ever teach you. I yeah. mean, the uh, yeah, like what you can imagine, like you know already that uh, all of us know that projects are it, they can be very difficult when they are managed one by one. But of course, when you are going to the level of programs and managing programs the whole thinking and the 
everything that you have built your base on changes, right? Suddenly you are not focused on only the delivery. You are responsible of the the final value to be delivered, right? The yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's that and and that, that that thing that they you're not looking at right. Let's get in, out, done. It's in. Out, in, out, do it, do it, do it, repeat, and kind yeah. of wash and repeat, isn't it? And it's um, and, yeah, and I've, exactly. I've, like I've, I've done some portfolio management again, and that's like again slightly different there, where you have a an ongoing relationship with the same stakeholders and the same people, changing the same piece of software sometimes, and uh, it, it is a that you get that different layer of different um, uh, different ways of of managing yeah suddenly it is not the end of life if you go a little bit of budget in one project but you will save a huge amount of budget or time in another one yeah. and you can you, compensate you do those um you have to manage that, that those um uh, exception levels don't you? yeah indeed and when you are reading them of course online it is hard to get without this context that you have just given, right? Mm. They say, I constantly validate your business model. All right, okay, I will constantly check. I will put a meeting every month to see if the business plan is still valid or not. Yeah. But yeah, it is far from the strategical thinking that value-oriented delivery works, right? So because when you are managing that one project, you are focused on its outcome when you are managing the portfolio as you have done in your career, then you have to juggle things around. Then the conflict management become becomes something else, right? Yeah. It's a di- different beast than uh, managing a conflict between the different two branches of code within the same project. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's completely different, isn't it? Yeah. With that... Well, with that large project in mind, and obviously there's other pieces in there. What what would you say was your uh, the biggest screw up that you've uh, done, and what did you learn from it? Oh, wow, screw ups! Jeez, just uh, the one. one. We only which need, one? One. but which is the biggest? <laughs> yeah, the do you have time till morning? <laughs> can I can I hold the time for another hour? Uh, I mean. I have done tons of screw-ups in all these projects that I have mentioned and the even the success ones and the biggest, my proudest projects probably include my biggest screw-ups as well. Like the, I have, um, I have in the past underestimated the influences of certain stakeholders um, and that has cost my project dearly, let's mm. say. So as like I am, uh, what I am preaching here is like, okay, you know, uh, we are, we should all be um, very careful about the human aspect of it and just not to the processes, but I am guilty of it, of doing it as well. Like in one project, I remember with uh, one of the energy companies of, uh, of um, one of our local governments here. Um, I was giving very particular um, importance 
to the I was a project manager and he was a program manager and I was giving a particular importance to that program manager and the project sponsor. All right. But there was a board member who had a certain interest in my project mm. and I failed. I, I completely screwed up to manage that relationship. I mean, that guy would sponsor like in case of conflicts we we ran out of and ran out of budget at one point etc that none of them would be a problem for that guy but i had to go through hoops and and uh, and cases uh, because i couldn't have i ignored to build a relationship with that guy like if i would identify him as a stakeholder and if i would say that okay i am going to manage him i'm going to update him because he has a certain interest and there must be a reason about it right yeah if i had done that i think i would save the project at least 25% of the time um like yeah it went it went over time we ran out of money we had to lose uh, some developers so the consequences were grave in the end uh, fortunately, the project was delivered and it was a success and uh, we had some uh, sort of support from all the layers and we were able to get him on board. But if had I done it before, that would be a completely different story. So yeah. my I would call that, I think if I look to the past, like there, I have done other mistakes who have caused uh, some money, some uh, time, uh, or I have missed an email, or I was not productive in one day and the other one. So all those things fade um, when I look at this one. I <laughs> mean, the, the stakeholder management, as you have also stressed out, I think is one of the most important aspects. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you said that that was your also reflected as being one of your proudest project deliveries as well what what how, how is it the, the pride element of that um i i like to measure the success of project for myself after finishing having finishing the project in two ways like the first one is what is the value provided to the people who have paid for that project or program. And secondly, what is the value provided to me? And that value has to be an everlasting, uh, a very concrete value for me. Like, did I become a better project manager? Did I become a, a better communicator? Did I learn more? How did I evolve also personally, right? So that's why the... Um, that biggest project was also my proudest project because first it has changed a lot of lives of people all around the world and uh, thanks to that about like 15,000 people were not laid off when the sanctions arrived that right. so that that's what makes me proud i mean i can i can take credit i will take credit actually for myself when i'm telling to myself okay well, like i could have inst if i didn't meet this guy if he was not on board with this transformation idea and if he didn't want to spend this 50 million dollar of project bringing nothing bringing no money this project brought no money eh? 
purely internal transformation for the big business to come and also optimize the costs. If he didn't do that, if we didn't do that together, if I didn't uh, succeed in igniting those ideas, I mean, the company would crash and burn. Uh, it would be one tenth of its size. It wouldn't survive at all. So the uh, yeah, it also has other aspects, of course. But uh, this, like, they wouldn't be able to uh, show the agility that they are showing today. Actually, after the sanctions, they have grown more. Wow. So yeah, so that's that I take I take pride in this kind of things. But of course, you know, uh, every project, end of every project delivery, you f you have the sense of pride. I don't know if you have that too, but mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah. We, yeah, like we we did it. I mean, yeah. we have been through a lot of bumps. We have had tons of meetings, but now we have the sign off. Now we have, we are seeing the customers who are getting value out of it, and. Yeah, that's a, that's a great feeling. I have also managed some projects for uh, Human Human's Rights Watch as a volunteer. That also is another feeling, right? Like those uh, kind of project management uh, or scheduling, that's, let's say it's a glorified scheduling, what you do there. You, cha you touch to the people directly and you change yeah. really people's lives immediately. And I really recommend it to anybody, a newbie project manager who is starting to go and volunteer in any organization, not just Human Rights Watch or, or UNICEF or whatever, but you, um, it, it is difficult to get into project management positions nowadays, right? That, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I would say 10 years ago, 15 years ago, it was it was way easier that you would show some sort of technical prowess on some certain area and they would make you a project manager of that project. And now they are looking for experience there. But yeah, how are you going to get experience without the experience? Yeah. Right. So it's a chicken and egg problem. And volunteering is one of the best ways to get there. And that's another feeling, of course, but the pride, of course, doesn't come over there by the excellence in project management. It comes more, yeah, helping another human being type of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's the, there's a couple of um, people I've spoken to around um, reaching out in, in those volunteer roles and they found the... Um, the, the the positive impact it has on them is, is huge. So yeah. Yeah indeed. So so looking at my list of questions, I have only a couple of questions left. And they are my usual sign off ones. So first one is what was the last book on project management that you read? Or related to project map that, that you thought applied for project management? Ah, yeah. Well, I like before before anything, I always have a copy of Getting Things Done on my desk, mm -hmm. and yeah. it's it's always it's always a motivator for me. Like if I am stuck, if I am procrastinating, if I am not in the mood of being productive, I just flip a few pages. I know everything inside and out. I don't even have to look at the book, but it gives me the comfort 
that yeah. it puts me into the mindset of going for a flow that mode of go 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 you know that right mm-hmm. so that's my like go to book it always is on the top of like you hear the noise now <laughs> co- co- coming from the book um the blog i actually listened to your the, the latest podcast with dr david yeah david hilson david hilson yes uh, i'm a great fan of his his work and uh I, I have to err on his side, like he, the I, I don't follow blogs, like I don't think that a lot of people follow like one or two blogs now, yeah. but we are like, okay, we search for stuff and then something comes on LinkedIn and then we click on it. So we don't consume channels, but we consume what is important in our like social circles yeah. somehow, for example, like Nigel, uh, sends me a link it is much more likely that i will click than somebody i don't know or just uh, because i have to put that filter on myself right yeah. so i cannot say i cannot say that i uh, i follow diligently a blog but um, there are there are some uh, like as i said that the, there I, I have some go to books that mm-hmm. I always yes. uh, follow, uh, like yeah, getting things done, is is one of them. And uh, the uh, I when I whenever I am stuck in something, I'm Princeton certified, and uh, I like to look up things also in the Princeton documentation. I refer to that a lot. Um, the during my job, especially like if I have to search for an authority like sometimes uh, so sometimes it's difficult to establish a uh, an authority for some type of people who know the job they are expert at it like for example at this construction project uh, we had uh, like the, my direct bus i was working with the ceo of course but but my direct was like a 60 year old um, expatriate russian who is uh, who knows everything about construction? Like, yeah. and me, I know like nothing about construction. I mean, he, and the guy can tell us from 50 meters that I don't I don't know anything about it. So, to to have have those kind of authority build up uh, with these kind of very influential people within organizations, it is important to read more books and be able to cite them when you need it. Yeah. Be able yeah. to pick up, pick up that knowledge, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. indeed. So the, and, the... and of course, uh, uh, always a fan of the podcast. Ah, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sunday Project Management Podcast is the best. It will be even better. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's very kind of you to say so. Um, just thinking of, of the, it's my penultimate one now. Um, what and maybe that was kind of what we covered a minute ago. But what top tip would you um, give to a seasoned PM, someone who's been out there? They've they've got all the battle scars, but maybe there's uh-huh. something that you see or you found yourself that you think yeah. actually you quite often forget this. Remember this? Yeah, actually, it, this is this is a very good way of uh, looking at the top tip question, like. We quite forget, the, as I just said two minutes ago, like there are two 
postmortems that I do with myself mm. after the, every project. One of them is the what is the value provided to the client. What is and the other one is what is the value provided to me. What? And I think this second part, in the name of selflessness, is often forgot. And mm. like the if a project manager wants to really advance in their career, like a mid-level project manager in a, in a mid-career, my top tip would be that invest in their value. And after every project, like looking at the value that you provide to the client, like looking at the lives that you change or the way of businesses that you transform, look how it has transformed you as well. And that that would be really like life changing if I would look at back as well. And if I also see how many times I didn't follow this advice myself and how it could change, the, the impact is amazing. Like uh, if I don't think about myself and there's nothing wrong with that, right? We mm, should yeah. all think about ourselves. Absolutely. Nobody th thinks about you if you don't think about yourself. Like, yeah, what in this project, the client has got a multi-million euro value. The, um, the project team has got a nice raise or so. And uh, we have got also some monetary compensations or whatsoever. Okay, but what did I get? What did I get the value that is everlasting that I can use in my next project? Did I gain a better skill? Am I a better project manager now? Am I... A, did I get uh, like a specific knowledge in an area that makes me, for example, I managed an SAP project and now I can go and uh, build and find some jobs in SAP as well. Like it can be as simple as this, yeah. but this post-mortems would be my top tip to a seasoned PM. That's excellent. It's really good, really good tip because it is something I don't, and, uh, and you're saying that there and, and I think about, um, it's, it gives perspective as well, doesn't it? Because sometimes you can come out the back of a project that can feel like an absolute nightmare dog's dinner that has yeah. gone poorly and you think there was no value to you spending those six months slogging yeah. your guts out. But if you sit back from there, you may sit back and go, yeah, I learned this one little nugget that I'm going to reuse. And it kind of goes to that... Um, the, the the agile scrum thing of of looking back at, at your uh, at your each of your sprints to try and look at how you can improve, but yeah. also have a look at what you did well as well, and keep doing keep doing the things. Um, and and by looking at that, it puts perspective on it. It may have been a hard project, but you learnt this from it, which makes it a better context. So next time, the next project it uh, puts you on a positive step for that. Exactly. And also making it uh, in a weekly base, as you just said, like a, on a continuous basis brings you the value of like, okay, you know, up to now, I have not been able to do it, but I can change it. Yeah. Right. And th that's key. That's very, very powerful. And I wish somebody told me this 10 years ago. Yeah, and, and I think listening to that there, the other point is, and it kind of come out of that, what you said, it's never too late to start doing something like that. Because exactly. you may not have done it for your whole career, but if you do it for every project going forward from now, then that will make a difference to every project you do from there. 
Yeah, because that will put that will put you already ahead yeah. of the people who have not done it uh, in their yeah. life, and that's no less than ninety percent, I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Here we come now to the final question. And Should this, it? Yeah, this this is going to be an interesting one, actually, really, because when we look back at uh, back in those days where you were managing this project, your first project, and you did not even know you were managing this project, <laughs> um, what... What would you what would you say to Siddhar if you bumped into him at the coffee machine on that first day, and what bit of advice? What what was the one thing that you would say? What would you tell yourself? <laughs> first, fir first thing, first really very important. I would say, dude, you notice that you are managing a project, right? <laughs> I knew that would be the first. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like the. You are. You think that you are still the architect of the project. You think that you are, uh, your responsibilities end in somewhere and don't go in some other areas. But just make a list of things that fall under your jurisdiction and compare it with project management and decide yourself, right? So really, like the for, for that specific project uh, I think that would be the first thing like if I knew from the beginning that I was managing a project like uh, yeah that, that would change a lot but as my like younger self in general um, like uh, what advice that I would I, I, I would give um, the yeah the first thing that I would say I mean like put more time on people relationships networks than plain technical knowledge of project management mm -hmm. yeah absolutely well Siddharth that has been a fantastic interview that has been interesting entertaining that's the first project manager that I've had so far that didn't know they were project managing uh, <laughs> and, until after the project yeah, so they're another I, unique I have to be honest <laughs> So if people want to um, get in touch with you, follow what you do, I know you do, uh, whether you do a bit of blogging and stuff, or you mention some podcasting, um, what's the best way to uh, get in touch with you? Uh, the best way is uh, I have a website called iCoach.com, but uh, not with C, but with Q. So it is I-Q-O-A-C-H.com. Okay. Um, and if you type my name and surname to Google, you will find where I am. My name and surname is uh, quite unique. I'm probably one of the two Sidaroks in the world. Yeah. Um, and who knows the second where the second one is. The uh, other uh, other place, like they can add me on LinkedIn. They can uh, also read my blog. I have some interesting guides nowadays that I am writing for project managers who would like to become uh, an independent, who would like to have uh, more freedom in their finances, etc. So I dive a lot in that I coach practice in the human aspect of the project management and self-development of a project manager. So they can chime in and give more ideas. I would be 
very, very happy to discuss everything. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's everything for me. Again, I just want to say thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been very entertaining and uh, have a wonderful evening. Thank you, Nigel. It was my pleasure. I hope you really enjoyed that interview with uh, Siddhar. I know uh, when I had it, there was some real food for thought there around what he'd been through um, in his career. Um, so, uh, like I say, I hope you really enjoyed it. And thank you to Siddhar for coming on. If you know anyone who has an interesting take or a story that you think listeners would be uh, intrigued man, about, about that relates to project management, then get them to get, get me on an email at sundaylunchpmpod at nigelcreaser.com or, or get hold of me on one of the, um, uh, what's the name? So email and social media sort of things. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and the handle is Sunday Lunch PM. Uh, any other comments you want to send across, fire away to that as well. And obviously, um, there's some time and effort in the show. But if you'd like to support the show, spread the news would be fantastic. Um, I'd like to ramp up the number of people listening to it. Uh, by doing so, then we may be able to get some interest in some more sponsors um, and uh, maybe bring some more um, uh, uh, interesting interviews. I had one interview which I was keen to get hold of, but they, they have a minimum level of uh, downloads that they'd like to uh, contribute to the show, which I can't blame them. Um, so anything you can do to share the show would be brilliant. Um, also, if you want to craft a five-star review um, on whatever platforms you're listening to, um, if you want to give some financial support, obviously there's the books where I were when I were a project manager and uh, project manager, the sketches available on Amazon. Um, or I've got the Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash Sunday lunch PM. But as ever, as I say every month, more importantly to know any of those things, it's great if you could join me again next time where we can uh, get some insightful and interesting uh, information from our, my next guests. But remember, project management is funny. Well, it's goodbye from me, Nigel Creaser, and it's goodbye from him, the Sunday Lunch PM. Goodbye.